Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. Welcome to an episode designed to make you think in a very different way. Let me start with a question. What is enough for you? Do you say things like, if I could just land that promotion, I'd feel valued. If I could buy that car, I'd feel successful. If I serve my guests that expensive wine, they'll be so impressed. If he would only give me that great big diamond ring, I'd feel loved. Aren't we always asking for more? Don't we all think we don't have enough? In the spotlight, two very wise women who share a theory. They believe that we all live in a state of sustainable abundance. We just don't see it. Instead, our mindset is focused on scarcity. The story that tells us we don't have enough. We want more and more and more, perpetuating a vicious cycle of consumption that lowers our own well-being and irreparably damages the earth. Gina LaRoche and Jen Cohen are longtime friends. They're skilled coaches and consultants and co-authors of the new book, The Seven Laws of Enough. It is the kind of book that makes you look at yourself and the world in a whole new way. The book is designed to provoke radical change at the personal, organizational, and societal level. Their hope is to guide us all on a transformational journey of self-discovery, to create a shift from thinking about what we don't have to rejoicing in what we do have, taking us all from scarcity to sustainable abundance and a feeling of both fulfillment and purpose in life. Gina and Jen, welcome to the show. Can you describe them for our listeners, the seven laws of enough? Law number one is stories matter. And it really is an opportunity for us to look at the stories who make up our lives, our communities, and how we feel about ourselves and our organizations. Law number two, I am enough, is a profound declaration of what it means to be enough. And we say, you declare it so. Law number three, I belong. You belong, period, full stop. And in our conversation, particularly in this country around tribes and where do I fit, Politically, economically, socially, I belong has become a really important conversation in this day and age. Law number four, no one is exempt. No one is exempt from sickness, old age, death. No one is exempt from the good times and the bad times, and sometimes we forget that. Law number five, resting is required. This is a conversation really about how do we rest in our nervous system and put down the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week work week. Law number six is joy is available. And law number seven is the final law is love is the answer. So many songs written like that. Love is the answer, right? All you need is love by the Beatles. Evidently, there's also a science behind why we feel like we need more, that we are not enough. It goes back to how our brains evolved. Can you talk about this? The brain was originally designed to keep us alive. One of the ways that the organism keeps itself alive is to sort for what's out of the norm or out of pattern or out of the ordinary or dangerous. So the brain is actually designed to look for trouble. Almost like back in the day, you'd see a a lion and run in the other direction. Absolutely. That's the best analogy we have, which is the tiger on the tundra. The tiger's resting relaxing on the tundra in the sun, and all of a sudden, here's a noise. 
senses something in the bushes, has a feeling that something is after it, and the design is to be able to incredibly quickly be alert to that possibility to escape literally death. In order to embrace these seven laws, we have to become aware of old habits that no longer serve us. How do we begin to do that? First, you start with awareness, seeing what habits you have that no longer serve you. So, for instance, if you come home from work and you sit down, eat popcorn and drink a glass of wine in front of television all day long, you find that life is not satisfactory. You could look there and say, well, this habit is not working for me. We learned from our teacher, Richard Shosey Heckler. He says, you are what you practice and you are always practicing something. And believe it or not, watching television after work and drinking a glass of wine is you practicing something. So we just start with awareness. After awareness, you work to unwind from the practice. And unwinding can look in a number of ways. You could do it in a community. You could do a cold turkey. I remember when my father quit smoking, he just quit one day and never picked up again. So that's a way. It takes a lot of strong will to do things like that, right? The same is true for that glass of wine. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, we always say reach out to community. You know, friends, colleagues are there to help. And then finally, you build muscles in a new practice. Maybe instead of coming home from work, you go to the yoga studio or you go to the gym or you decide to go listen to concerts at the symphony. But you pick something else to build and practice on instead of that old habitual habit you were resting in. Law number one, stories matter. You suggest a daily inventory, a way to begin and end each day based on seeing the abundance that is already present in our lives. And I was wondering, is this really kind of a way to press the reset button? Yeah. I mean, it builds really on what Gina just said, which is if we're going to go from our survival brain to building the capacity to see what is here, which really is fundamentally what we're suggesting in the shift from scarcity to sufficiency, which is seeing the lack, seeing the not enough. We come by it honestly. There's biology behind it. And then there's a lot of cultural conditioning Mm -hmm. behind it. We shift to what is already actually available to us. And the daily inventory. Isn't that gratitude too? It's gratitude practice. We have that practice in the book. In fact, we sometimes say that's the first, not easiest, but it's a direct gateway to begin to shift to what is here. What I'm grateful for is what's already available. And then we build, we condition the mind, we incline the mind, as some would say, toward what is actually already available to us. You know, like I said, when I first was introducing the two of you, it just feels like it's a different way to think, isn't it? It's a different way to think and perceive. It is a different way to act in the world. So what we think, we become. You say that there is bounty everywhere on earth and that there is enough for all of us. Yet some people in the world are starving. How can your movement change that? This is where it's important for us to be rigorous and where we say that this book or our work is slightly different from your average self-help conversation. This work really does live at the intersection of our personal reality, our personal mindset, the way we think that you've been talking about, and the social system Mm -hmm. in which we're living. We talk about three levels of scarcity. 
One is this mindset scarcity. The second level is what we call interpersonal scarcity, which is if only you would do more, I would be okay. Or if you would do less, I would be okay. But somehow your insufficiency is the cause of my suffering. That's in the relational realm and it's happening all around us. And the third is structural scarcity. You can change your mindset all you want, but if you can't pay your rent or your mortgage, that is what we call structural scarcity. Or the very fact that 30,000 children will die today and they will not die today because there is insufficient food. It's not because there isn't enough. It's because we have chosen a system that actually creates scarcity where there isn't any actual scarcity to drive up economic value. And we've done that. We've chosen a model that allows people to die for greed, basically. Define and explain how you came about sustainable abundance. You also call this sustabu. And as I can hear from you, Jen, this really is a movement. Gina, a philosophy. Well, I came about it about 18 years ago. I met a man named Les Traban. I was at an event and he looked at me and he said, you're swimming in a sea of scarcity and you don't even know it. That shocked me. It like grabbed me from behind my belly button and like yeah. took hold of me. Yeah. And it's been a central conversation I've had for those last 18 years. As I dove into this conversation, what is scarcity and what would it mean to not live in scarcity? A group of us got together just to really talk about what that would look like. And over the last 17, 18 years, we have cultivated practices, formed communities to create this bridge from scarcity to sufficiency. The seven laws really are the signposts or handhelds of that bridge. Let's go to law number three, which is I belong. Feeling as if we belong is such a basic need. Being alone, feeling disconnected from society, lacking companionship is, as we know, devastating. I'm reminded of the orphaned children in Romania in about 1989 who didn't experience touch, comfort, love. Their development was stunted. They could not thrive. Walk us through this basic need of belonging. Well, this is also in the neurophysiology of what it means to be human. You talk about the children in the orphanage. Mm -hmm. The term that people use is called failure to thrive. What we now know from the neuroscience is we have something called mirror neurons. The brain is actually completed and grows in relationship. We don't have a completed brain when we're born. We learn the art of being human in relationship with other humans. What we like to say is it's actually impossible to not belong. Belonging is built in to the social animal that we are. We belong because we're here. And then human beings make all these lines of demarcation, lines of separation that have some biological function. I'm in, you're out. You're going to help me survive. You're not going to help me survive. There's some biological efficacy to that. But we've taken it to an extreme where we have no need to harm each other over it, no need to kill each other over it. And yet we're doing it every single day. And it's fundamentally a falsehood that some people are in and other people are out. Reconnecting with nature is also part of your movement. Does that make you environmentalists? Not in terms of how we identify ourselves. 
If you're gonna have a conversation about belonging to life, if you're gonna have a conversation about everyone mattering, if you're gonna have a conversation about reciprocity and embeddedness, that involves the planet we're spinning on. Mm. There is no way to not be part of the entire ecosystem that we are. If that makes us environmentalists, we'll take it. It's not what we're organized around talking about. Resting is required. Law number five. I love this law. <laughs> Why is rest part of your seven laws? As I said at the beginning of the conversation, resting is required in our society because we're not doing it. Uh, we have clients who don't take vacation. We have clients lose vacation days every year. I say, why don't you just write a check to your company because that's what you're doing. Uh, we have clients who cannot take time off from work. If they, quote unquote, take vacation, they're on email. They get home from work. They're working, working, working. When they wake up in the morning, the first thing they're doing is grabbing their cell phones and sleeping with their cell phones. sleeping with their cell phones and they really can't let go. We have this belief that resting means you know, sitting in front of the television drinking that wine. And that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about a fundamental rest of the nervous system, mm. which can look like meditation, yoga, prayer, laughter, reflection. reflection, laughter, and lightness. When we say resting, we're not even necessarily talking about sleeping, not that you're not resting when you're sleeping, but we're talking about stimulating the positive emotional attractors in the nervous system to bring about rest. The Seven Laws of Enough is also about becoming awake to our privilege. A call for anyone of European descent who wishes to explore how racism has shaped our minds and our hearts and how we can become part of the solution. Talk to me about this. For those of you who cannot see us or have never seen pictures of us, I am a white woman. This is Jen speaking. Here's what I would say as a white person. If you look at the history of the United States of America and you look at the ways that systematically the African-American population in particular was marginalized, kept out of neighborhoods, kept out of benefits, kept out of things that white Americans enjoyed as not as privileges, but as entitlements to being alive in a country that was they had served and was serving them. There's no way if you start to look at that history that you don't see what a colleague of ours who wrote a book called Being Born on Third Base, you can't see that you weren't born on third base. To be ahead in that way just because of the way a system is set up is what it means to be a beneficiary of white privilege. So many white people say, well, but I'm not racist. We're talking about a system. We're not talking about people's personal beliefs. This is not a personal conversation. It's a structural system that was set up to allow certain people to excel in a culture and other people to be structurally held back. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. These days, more and more people are working from home. When your computer breaks down, you lose business. This is Dave Elmajan, president of TechHelpBoston.com. Our tech experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer. Same day, next day, and weekends too. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted us since 2000. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com.
Gina, you are an African-American woman. Does this speak to you? It does. One of the things I often say to Jen is just to hear white people engage in this conversation about their privilege and what it means to live as a white person, because my experience of being a black woman is I've had to face what that means every day since I was four or five years old. This conversation has me feel less alone, even though the experience is different. I can say a lot about what it means to be black in America. Just to have the experience of people engaged in the conversation, I find meaningful. I've used the laws myself to overcome the day-to-day nits and picking on me as a black woman, and it has helped. And as Jen said, they're still coming. This is probably the perfect time for us to step back just for a second and talk about the two of you. And I'll begin with Gina. You know, take us back to your childhood, where you come from. What was the message in your home when you were growing up? I've moved around quite a bit as a child, but I've actually spent most of my childhood in Massachusetts. I grew up in a Catholic house, and I was the only black per family in some of the towns we lived in. At one time, I was the only black child in the school I went to. Being the only black person in an all-white community and then being Catholic, I got a lot of messages of confusion. People would say to me, can black people be Catholic? I'd be like, obviously, since I am one and I am Catholic, uh, just a lot of messages of where did you come from? You don't belong here. And my family's real ardent belief that education was the way up and out. My parents went to college. My grandmother went to college. Education is very important to us. And my family saw that that was the ticket to success in America. I spend a lot of time educating myself, and I seem to have passed that down to my own children who are currently in college. So those are some of the messages that I grew up with. Let's talk to you, Jen. Your child childhood messages that informed your life? I'm a Jew, so I'm white, and I grew up in a Jewish family. I think some of the messages that connect to the conversation we're having really came from my mother. She was an educator. She was very liberal. She talked openly about sexism and racism in our home. She spoke about equality as part of her training, getting a master's degree in the 70s, you know, so she was doing it all, as they say. And she was being a mom. She was driving us from Brockton, Massachusetts, up to Cambridge to get the education that she thought we ought to have. So very similarly, ironically to Gina, education was, she didn't talk about it as the ticket out of something. But I think many Jews felt like education, number one, was a strong value, and number two was a way to make it in America. The book is laid out just like a guide with practices at the end of each law. Tell me, what is your hope for the reader of this book? Well, personally, we just offered the practices as a gateway They're not prescriptive. It really is to give you ideas to create your own. And some of them are even labeled Gina's practice for this, just to give you ideas. But it's just to show you to take the opportunity to pause. That daily inventory actually gives you three opportunities to pause in the morning, midday, and in the evening to settle yourself, to meditate, to offer compassion and kindness, to vision create a vision for the future for yourself, to have some fun and play. But some practices in the book are really simple, like go out and meet your neighbor, have a progressive dinner. Again, they might look different for you, but they really are just a gateway for you to invent your own practices. Because as I said, you're always practicing something. So I just wanted to point you in the direction of practice. You have a company, which is called Seven Stones. The two of you together as friends and colleagues. Obviously, you're very close to one another. How do you protect your friendship and then stay objective and be able to be focused on your work? 
seems like a beautiful friendship. We start each week with, we call it a partner's call, where we take time to just check in with each other. We usually start in the personal domain around family and kids and what happened on the weekend. And then we have a partner practice together where we sit together and invoke the names of our clients and vendors and anyone in our system. We offer them kindness. And then we shift into the day-to-day of the business. But I would say that Monday morning meeting is really critical as the transition from our personal life into the work life. We often laugh and say, we're actually not friends. We're business partners and we're actually more like family than we are like friends in the sense of we've made a commitment to each other's thriving in each other's well-being and each other's financial stability. The business really is a reflection of the seven laws. And any time that it isn't, we pause and stop ourselves and ask, where have we veered back into scarcity? And how do we support ourselves and each other and the whole ecosystem of Seven Stones to be standing in the laws? You are both mothers, very proud moms. What is your message to your children and how have you taught them to see their lives in abundance and not in scarcity? I guess the change starts at home, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Candy, this is a really tricky question for me because I have two sons who are African-American. Sometimes I don't know if they've gotten that message because the message of the society around them is so different of what's available for them. As children, and even now as adults, I held them in deep dignity The children had a lot of agency in the household, although the decision rights remained with my husband and me, but the kids could come forth. And I've taught them practices. They've been taught how to meditate. They've been taught how to breathe. They have journals. They have the tools to rest in this life of sustainable abundance. And again, for my kids, I don't know if that's enough. We'll see. Well, Sophia, my daughter, has the privilege of being white So her belonging is not nearly as in question, but she is female in the society that we live in. I would just say ditto, Candy. You know, Sophia, (laughs) Sophia hears Gina and I. She sees our relationships. She sees our commitment to each other. She watches the way we are running our lives. I have conversations with her all the time about these distinctions when she comes home with, I want more of this and less of that. And why did this person and, you know, the kind of Why can't I have what so-and-so has? Uh, right. You know, I use all of those moments as a gateway to, you know, yesterday she said to me, I know, I know, I know. I should just be grateful for what I have. <laughs> and insert the rolling eyes, right? <laughs> insert the rolling eyes, right. Gina went online and bought her a new computer yesterday. And it was, what else can I have on the computer? And I gave her one of those looks. And she goes, I know, I know. It's really awesome that Seven Stones can buy me a computer. So, you know, we just hope that it's in there. You know, there are times as we raise our children when we think they're not listening, but they are. Candy, your question reminds me of a story of my youngest son. We were on the train platform in New Haven and there was a vending machine and we were just waiting for the train. He was fooling around. He was like in fifth grade and he found 50 cents in the vending machine. But the soda was $1.25 and he begged me and begged me for the extra 75 cents. 
And I actually wouldn't give it to him. And I used that as one of these moments, these lessons of scarcity. I said, you were fine. He was fine. He didn't even want a soda. But once he saw the 50 cents, then it was scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. I need a soda. Give me a soda. And trying to get that soda. So that was my that was one of many examples of teaching my children about this path. Your website has a really cool one minute quiz our listeners can take for free to see if they're living in scarcity or abundance. The website is seven, spell it out, S-E-V-E-N, sevenstonesleadership.com. How can people buy your book? Well, if you want an autographed copy, you can buy them on our website, but you can also go to Amazon or Barnes and Nobles and to the publisher Parallax Press directly. Love is the final law, ladies. All you need is love. How is love part of sustainable abundance? Love in the way that we're talking about it is not a feeling. It's not a thing that comes and goes. It's not a thing that dies after you've hung around with the person long enough and are sick of them. It's a place to come from. It's a recognition that we can either live in fear or we can stand in love and for love at all times. And then there are a whole bunch of other skills that are also required to live in congruence with love. But love is the come from and is the foundation of all the other laws. This program is called The Story Behind Her Success. And when you look at your lives, as you focus on this movement, teaching the world about sustainable abundance, then what does success mean to you? We do a lot of visioning creating our future from the future, which is one of the practices in the book. In some regards, success can look like achieving the vision that we set forth, which we have done many times. But where it gets tricky is when we start thinking about financial reward and financial success and is there a number and what is enough? It's still something I dare to say we both are still in conversation about is what does that look like for us? One of our mentors, Alan Rosenblith, says, You can tell what a culture values by what they measure. We do have expanded metrics for ourselves. Both of us wanted to have a certain engagement with our children. That was a metric of success for us and has been. I say was because her kids are in college and my kid is a teenager. And so it's shifted. But a certain kind of engagement with our children. Time, as you said, to sit at meditation retreat, to be quiet, to walk in the woods. All of those things are actually in our expanded metric of a successful life. We both have sacrificed a lot of money actually to have those things. I wouldn't have it any other way. I couldn't live a life that the fundamental metric or the only metric or the most major metric was the financial reward. I want to say thank you so much to both of you for being guests today on the story behind her success. Gina LaRoche, Jennifer Cohen, The Seven Laws of Enough, Cultivating a Life of Sustainable Abundance. Can you each leave our listeners with one piece of advice? No matter what they tell you, you are enough. Love is the answer. Just stand inside the place of love. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. 
Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, candyoterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?